Welcome to In the Telling. I'm Stephen G. Forwood. And I'm Miranda Mims, and we are the co-founders of the Nomadic Archivist Project. The Nomadic Archivist Project is excited to announce that we are seeking submissions for an anthology exploring the archival experience across Africa and the African diaspora called The Evidence, Black Archivists Holding Memory. We welcome archivists, artists, curators, historians, memory workers, public record keepers, scholars, and students to participate in this groundbreaking project. If you want to know more about the project, go to our website or check out the links in the show notes. The deadline for submitting a proposal or abstract is December 15th, 2020. I would like to welcome our guest today, Dr. Mabula Simoha, who is Associate Professor in the English Department at the University of Tuorpont, where she also received her PhD. A specialist in the field of Africana studies, Mabula has conducted research and taught in several universities and prisons in the United States and France, including Bennington College, Columbia University in New York and Paris, Fired Prison Initiative, Bayview Correctional Facility, Stanford University, Paris, Sciences Po, Paris and Reims, and the prisons in Bois d'Arcy, Le Pont Juvenile Detention. From 2013 to 2016, Mabula served as the member of the National Committee for Memory and History of Slavery. Since 2013, she has served as the president of the Black History Month, BHM, an organization dedicated to the celebration of Black history and cultures throughout the world. She is the author of Le Triangle, a lexicon reflection sur l'identité noire, Black is the Journey, Africana the Name, Welcome to In the Telling. Thank you, Stephen and Miranda. Um, yes, it's good to have you today. I had a pleasure meeting you in 2007 at the Columbia University's um, Institute of African American Affairs Summer Teachers and Scholars Institute. And I was just, I really enjoyed your energy in class and I could see your face from where I was standing when I was teaching. And then again at Paris, and I kind of wanted to find out where you, um, how you are, and where you're teaching, or where you are these days, you know, where you're working and living and so forth. Mm -hmm. So right now I'm based in France. I'm saying that because I've spent a lot of time in the U.S., but uh, for the last 11 years, I've been based in France, going back and forth uh, to the U.S., but only um, temporarily. So I'm based in the Paris area, in the Paris suburb, the banlieue. I live in the city of Bagnolet and uh, which is right outside of Paris. And I teach at the University of Tours, so I commute to, um, uh, to go and teach uh, where in my home institution. Mm -hmm. What is that uh, commute for you to teach at tour? <laughs> that, that commute is not a good thing in my life. Um, I teach two days in a row, so I have a, a, a packed schedule so that I don't have to go every day because the plan is not to move to Tours. Uh, I'm, uh, you know, I'm a Parisian. I was born in Paris. I still enjoy big cities, even though I'm growing more and more interested in, uh, you know, nature and quieter places. Um, but uh, I don't want to live in Tours, so I have to go. I sleep overnight and I teach two days in a row and we have a very, a much heavier teaching schedule here in France. So okay. these are long days, okay. six or seven uh, classes a week. So Okay. Wow. 
but I it's you know I'm alive yes. <laughs> <laughs> surviving it yes um, so in the interview uh, on France 24 you mentioned that you have more loved ones in France than in Cote d'Ivoire mm -hmm. how would you describe your black family experience in France I think the reason why I spoke about um, having a greater number of uh, loved ones uh, in France and hexagonal France rather than Côte d'Ivoire, it's just a, an assessment of the, um, the current situation. As I said earlier, I was born in France. Uh, I was born in Paris. I grew up in, in, in the Paris, the greater Paris area. Mm -hmm. And um, so my most immediate family um, so if I include my, my, my parents, particularly my mom, uh, my brothers and sisters, the cousins, um, you know, that I know and that I grew up with, uncles, aunties, and everyone, they are the ones that, that were established in France, but mm -hmm. they're, they're only a portion of my family and my extended family. So mm -hmm. there are a lot of people who are part of this extended family and who are still in, in Côte d'Ivoire, in the Ivory Coast. Mm -hmm. But I don't know them. So it's as if this migration um, on the part of my parents to France has made the family unit smaller and we have come closer to the you know, nuclear family. It's not really nuclear because we still have you know, like a, a portion of the extended family. But it's not, I don't have um, with the people who are in, um, in Côte d'Ivoire uh, I'm not that close to them as I would have been if my family had remained in uh, Côte d'Ivoire. Right mm. now, it's, it's the people that I've seen, the people who are migrants as well, and they're the ones I'm, I'm dealing with. So the other ones back in the uh, Ivory Coast, it doesn't mean that I, I don't love them. It's right. really that I don't know them and that I, I have difficulty connecting with them because of lifestyle, because of uh, citizenship status, because of the language at times. I've been to uh, the Ivory Coast um, a few times, but not in a very long time now. Mm. Um, so all those things have um, you know, shaped our relationship. So my immediate loved ones, the ones I see regularly, they, they happen to be in, in France. Thank you for that clarification, because I kind of felt like that's what you meant and that you were drawing a point you know, because I was listening to the interviewer kind of trying to steer you in different directions, but you steadfastly were like, this is what I mean, and this is what's happening. Exactly. <laughs> I really appreciate that. I want, um, want to know if you could talk a little bit about your parents' uh, migration story, and mm -hmm. wondered if it's a story that's, um, that, that is known throughout your family. Like if it's some migration stories, people, we know where we came from, but we don't know the story about the whys and the hows. Mm -hmm. So the official story, uh, <laughs> as it circulates within my family and uh, told by my mother, um, because my father died um, 26 years ago and I didn't grow up with my, my father and I've okay. always grown up with my mom, who keeps on, uh, not keeps on, but who frequently gives stories and, and, and tries to develop uh, successfully, I should say develop a family narrative. So the official um, story, because I, I tend to question it, is that uh, my father came in, um, after 1965 to France and he came uh, to become a, stud um, a student 
um, a student in, in France. Uh, and then later on, a few years later, my mother joined him because she was his wife and uh, they had a kid together. And so uh, my mother came in 1969 with my um, eldest brother, who is the only one out of uh, seven uh, to have been born in, in, in the Ivory Coast. The other ones, the sixth one, including myself, were all born in France. So my parents came officially for the, you know, in pursuit of a better life, you know, um, economic opportunities, uh, a better future for their children. And this is how they established uh, themselves there. So my mother's been there in, um, since 1969, and she's still, she's still um, here in, in France. My father returned to the Ivory Coast in the late 70s, and he, uh, he died there. He never returned after, after his departure. So that's the story. Was there, was there a reason why your father chose to return and your mother chose to stay? Was it just... That's part of the mysteries and silences. And uh, I, I think it's a combination of multiple things. I think that um, uh, I found out that uh, my, after his death, that my father had enrolled in a university program in a sociology department and that he had reached the level of, um, um, of a master's degree. Uh, I know that he had also enrolled previously in a, a kind of a law program, but only at the undergraduate level. I don't know what happened with that. Okay. And I know that he was also involved in uh, politics. And at the time, um, you know, student, organi student organization involved mm -hmm. in politics. So if we're talking about the 1970s, it's only like 10 to 15 years after the independence of the Ivory Coast. Right. So I think that there was um, a whole, you know, um, student movement and, and people who thought that they were going to, um, um, you know, join the, you know, the rank of high civil servant or work with the presidency, all these things. So I'm assuming that my, my father was part of that movement because he was the head of a student organization based in, based in France. Mm -hmm. So my understanding and part of the official story is that he went back to the Ivory Coast where he was about to get some big position and that at some point my mother was supposed to um, you know, join him and we were supposed to go back. And, and, and thanks to that uh, you know, really French education that we would have gotten, we would be the um, you know part of the intellectual elite of uh, of the Ivory Coast. That was the the plan, as it's been uh, said to me. Mm -hmm. Of course, the plan didn't work out that, uh, at all. Uh, my father never got a job. I really, I am really unclear about what happened, what he did when he uh, when he went back. I'm also assuming some uh, kind of uh, you know breakup or separation with my mom, even though. They were still in touch, even though I would write, we would write to our father, he would write to us, and we would uh, send him our reports, you know, cards, uh, our great cards. We were in touch until his death. Um, but I don't know, in terms of the couple, I'm, I'm today at my age, um, there's a story that I don't know. Uh, but when he was sick, because at, at some point he was sick, my mother would um, still go back and, and visit him until his death. Uh, but I never did uh, in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. uh, 
yeah, so we were supposed to go back at some point. We never went back. And we all here, the children and now the grandchildren. Mm-hmm. Yes. So after he left France, that was the last time that you saw him? No, I think I went when I was, um, I think, four years old, like maybe in 79 or 80, no, 79. So three or four years old. And, uh, and that was the last time, but I have no recollection. Uh, I have memories of other things for some reason. One of my grandmothers, uh, you know, like smells and tastes, and, but uh, I have no direct recollection of, of my father. So I would speak to him on the phone. I would receive tapes uh, with, uh, you know, messages for each of us. We would receive, um, you know, letters, postcards. Uh, last time I spoke to him was right after high school graduation. Um, because I had, gotten my, I had gotten my degree with distinction. And so he congratulated me from, for, for that. And that was the last time I spoke to him. But I never saw him, um, except for pictures. And so I'm supposed still, to look like him. Oh. Do you still have some of the letters and tapes? I don't have the tapes. They must be somewhere, but I don't have the tapes. But I have the, some of the letters, uh, letters that he addressed to all of us and to my mom. Some mm-hmm. of them we have like uh, after his death is really the time um, when I went back to the Ivory Coast. Um, I was in my teens, late teens. Um, I felt the need to go and, um, and talk to him and have um, you know, clarification about the situation and who he was in my life and what was going on. And um, we were poor. So um, the summer I decided that I wanted to go, uh, I didn't have enough money to buy the ticket. And so I, I decided to go the next summer, but he died in between. So that following summer, I still went um, mm-hmm. so to, 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 to go to his house mm-hmm. to see where he grew up. My mom, they, they, they grew up in the same, in the same city, small, small town. Uh, I went to his house. I went to his grave. And we um, brought back two bags of, uh, of uh, some of his belongings. And mm-hmm. those bags were all the letters and some types of paper. So this is where I, I found the student idea, uh, right. you know, yeah. um, and that I got to um, try to understand, you know, my own version of the story. You, um, you t- you've touched on this a little bit throughout this interview, but um, another point that you made on France 24, um, you said that you felt or feel as if you were expected to go home, mm-hmm. um, a so, sort of feeling of um, limbo. Mm-hmm. I think you described it. Um, and your family told you you weren't French, and the French said you weren't French. How did or does that idea shape your family dynamic now? Now, today, hmm, that's different. Um, when we were young, uh, we were really, um, you know, expecting the materialization of the dream of the return. We were supposed to go back and we were supposed to be, you know, great intellectuals or civil servants in this, uh, you know, in the beginning, the, new, the, 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 yes, the early decades of this independent Ivory Coast, right? So we had to get good grades. We had to do well at school. We were, but we were really in limbo. So France was supposed to be temporary. Uh, at some point we would depart. Um, there were always talks about life when we go home, when we go home, when we go home. So this home, the Ivory Coast was supposed to be mine. I think at least in rhetorically or in theory, 
Mm-hmm. I, was, I was brought up this way. But little by little, you go to school and you have an everyday life in hexagonal France. Yes. Uh, and, and there as well, you understand that you don't belong. You're black, you're African, you're Muslim. Uh, you live differently. Uh, France was very exotic to me. It was, uh, I love to go outside. I love to go, you know, um, at school because it was things that were totally different from w- what was going on in my home. Mm-hmm. So I discovered France and I liked France uh, uh, precisely because it was different. Uh, but uh, at the same time, mm-hmm. France was also treating me as a foreigner and as somebody who was not supposed to be here or somebody who was supposed to leave the country at some point. The 1980s were the beginning of the, um, the National Front, uh, which is a political party from the you know, far right. Now they have a new name. Uh, it's called Rassemblement uh, National, so National Gathering or something. But it's the same political party, same leaders. Mm-hmm. At least the, the, the daughter and the niece of the uh, you know, historic um, founder of, of, of the former national party. So at the time they were, they were emerging um, and they were really you know, xenophobic and racist and, and, and promoting the idea of a massive return of recent immigrants uh, in, their, in their countries of origin. So I grew up with that. And I also did not question the idea that, uh, that I was not French. It, I was not French, and I was not born uh, French. So I remember that um, maybe in 1986, I went to a summer camp in Italy, uh, mm-hmm. and it was funded by my local you know, city hall. And I remember that on that trip, the, the documents, the idea that I had was an Ivorian uh, idea. It was the equivalent to a passport, but it, was, it wasn't the actual passport, but it was the equivalent, and it was uh, from the um, Ivory Coast. So mm-hmm. I wasn't born uh, French. And then a few years later, like in 1989, I remember when we went to get the, you know, like the, the national idea, la carte d'identité, la carte nationale d'identité. So I remember that process, and I remember the news um, shared by my mom who said, uh, apparently you have the right to be French. So, you know, she rounded, up, she rounded up all of us and she took us to the, you know, that particular, you know, governmental agency so that we could apply for uh, the national mm-hmm. idea. So I was 13 at the time. So in my mind, in the 12 uh, previous years, I, I was not French. And then I remember when I became French. And years later, uh, at some point, I think I lost at the same time my national ID and my passport and I had to renew them. And when I went to renew them, this is when I was explained that I had to go to, um, through a very particular process because I was not born French. So I had to get a certificate of French identity and it stated, I mean, I still have the document, it states that uh, I'm, I was born French by, no, I was made French by reintegration because my parents were born uh, in the Ivory Coast during the colonial times. And because I was born in France and was living in France, I could uh, kind of, um, I was il- eligible for French mm-hmm. citizenship. Okay. Even though my parents are not uh, French, but right. because of the, this colonial past, I had a right 
the birth, the colonial past, the birthplace, and the fact that I was still living in France. Uh, so this is what I found out. I, I must have been in my 20s, but I have a certificate. They told me that it was a very important document that I should never lose because it was the proof of my citizenship. Sure. So I don't get... Uh, let me say, like if I lose my documents, it means that I do not get them automatically because I'm some other type of French. Right. Wow. Right. You became French when you were 13. I think that I, so yeah. I, I, I don't want to get technical because mm -hmm. perhaps I, I could be French before and we didn't know. Didn't know. But I know that the documents that we had were Ivorian. And right. I know that I have the Ivorian citizenship. Okay. But the, the, the national uh, what we call the, the national ID, I got it in 1989. I'm, I know, I remember. It was an event. Yeah. <laughs> like we're, we're French now. Like, I don't know. I mean, I remember when we went and what we did and, and, and how important it was uh, for my mom. I know we keep referring to the same France 24 interview. I was riveted by it, though, because I love, as I mentioned, I love the way you handle the questions and the interviewer uh, for a number of reasons. Um, and you spoke about BLM as a movement. And, and, and you were talking about the differences between the way um, past movements have, we're talking about without, but you're like, no, we are speaking, we are citizens. We're speaking from within, yes. not from without. And I was wondering if, if and how your family family was um, impacted by these current waves of demonstrations of iterations of Black Lives Movement, if at all, because I'm kind of curious about like what the ground looks like there. You know, a, a, sort of a, um, an example of how Black citizens are responding to this moment. Um, I think my my um, my response is going to be quite long because we're talking about different movements, different times, different chronologies. What I was talking about uh, during the, the TV show is that, you know, when we're talking about the Negritude movement, we are talking about the colonial times. And what mm -hmm. I meant by we are speaking from within and not without uh, is not that the, you know, people involved in the Negritude movement were not fr French. Okay. It's not that they were not French. They were colonial subjects at the time. Guyana was, uh, if we talk about uh, Léon Gontran Damas, Léopold Cédar Sangor, Aimé Césaire, even the Nardal sisters. We are talking about Martinique. We are talking mm -hmm. about French Guyana. We are talking about Senegal. So Senegal is independent now, but yeah. Martinique and Guyana are not, and right. along with other territories. So even when those people, activists, you know, artists, thinkers, intellectuals of, at, at the time. Mm -hmm. Even when you think of Présence Africaine, uh, the publishing house and, and, and the, the journal, they are talking about a time when, when their territories is under colonial rule. So they are talking about equality. They are talking about respect. They are talking about the, the significance of you know, black history and cultures, mm -hmm. but in the context of, of, of a colonial rule. Okay. So this, is, this would be what I meant by from without. They were asking perhaps uh, equal access to citizenship, for instance. They wanted to be real citizens, or perhaps some of them were in favor of independence. But mm -hmm. th th this, this was the context. Right. Okay. When we're talking about today, 
we are talking about the post-colonial moment and not only the post-colonial moment in independent, you know, uh, Senegal or Ivory Coast or even Vietnam. We are, uh, we are talking about the post-colonial moment, um, moment in, I would say, in Limbo, Martinique, Guadeloupe or mm -hmm. Guyana that, are now, that have now become territories like departments. This is an administrative unit. So they're supposed to be citizens. I mean, the people inhabiting those, uh, those uh, territories are supposed to have become full citizens, equal citizens. They're no longer colonial subjects, right? Right. So we're no longer talking about the Ivory Coast or Senegal that are now countries that are independent, mm -hmm. right? right? We are talking about the descendants. Now, first, the people who left those territories newly independent are still part of the French empire <laughs> mm -hmm. who came to hexagonal France. Some mm -hmm. came as foreigners, my parents. Some came in the 1960s, not as foreigners, Martinique, Guadeloupe, <laughs> Guyana, Reunion Island, right? Whatever the citizenship status, those people had children. And those children were born in hexagonal France. Right. Right? And so who are those children? Are they, you know, foreign nationals? Are they, you know, children of uh, former, you know, colonial territories? Mm -hmm. What are they? This is what we're discussing. So some of those children, if not most of those children, first cannot be understood as immigrants. They did not mi migrate. And second, they happen to have, for the most part, the French citizenship. Mm -hmm. So they are French citizens of some other sort. And this is how we get into the um, unavoidable discussion around race. We are really talking about race right now. This is what race and racism within hexagonal France, apart from the colonial past, apart from um, you know, the current neo-colonial or imperial situations of the territories that I've mentioned. The mm. people of color within hexagonal France and having a converse conversation with the Republic on an equal footing. Yeah. I'm speaking as a French citizen. This is just an administrative status. It's not the expression of my particular attach attachment to France or my love for France or uh, my pride in being French. I'm personally, mm. and I'm really talking about personally, I don't care. I happen to be French. I happen mm. to be French. But mm. when you're French like I am, oftentimes you are asked to express publicly your love for France, your attachment to France, oh. your, uh, I don't know, the fact that you're grateful toward France. Um, I can talk about the Ivory Coast. The Ivory Coast is part of, of, of my life, but I want to discuss it only on my own terms. Mm -hmm. Ivory Coast is intimate. You right. cannot place me uh, or make me a foreigner or make me outside of France on the basis of my ancestry. And this is not a denial of my, my Ivorian you know, origins. This is not a, a shame. It's just that I, if I have to deal with the Ivory Coast, let me deal with the Ivory Coast. Right now, I was born in France. I grew up in France. To this day, France is the country where I've spent um, the highest number of years. And mm. the conversation the, that I'm having is, uh, is from within. 
even though I'm also part of the diaspora and the other place where I've spent a lot of time is the US. And I was also partly educated in the US and I've traveled in the Americas, in um, you know, Jamaica or you know, Guyana, and I'm interested in the African diaspora. So mm -hmm. I don't believe in national borders. I don't care about national borders. I like black people, black peoples and black <laughs> countries. <laughs> uh, but, I, but, but France is part of my world. Whether she likes it or not is not, not the issue. It's just, it's just a fact. Do you, so, do you think, do you feel that maybe, um, do you see symmetry in the way that you feel um, and your other family members in France? Do you th feel like they think about it and understand it the same way that you do? No, it's, we, we have a, um, a different, um, it depends, it depends. We have different positions because first it's a lot of us. It's uh, seven children. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, so I think it matters because it does like it allows for a diversity of uh, opinions and positions on the matter. And then I think that chronology matters as well. Yes. I have my oldest brother who is the only one who was born in the Ivory Coast, who came uh, when he was five years old in, in France, um, who uh, eventually became French uh, as well. But who is the one who um, I think is the only one who truly uh, speaks and understands our native tongue. I mean, um, it's not even native for us, but my mother tongue, he speaks it and he understands it, right? And he knows all the, uh, you know, the elders back home. He knows and he's, he, he, was used, he was used to going to the Ivory Coast frequently when he was, um, when he was younger. So mm -hmm. I don't think that his gap with the Ivory Coast and with the origins is as wide as mine it doesn't mean that it makes things easier for you, for him and mm -hmm. i think that he still has to handle to handle his uh, jula identity his ivorian identity and his french identity but mm -hmm. it's it's a different time and he also arrives um i think in in 1970 so i think that in terms of uh, racial relations in france that's all that's already a different moment mm -hmm. at this time it was not that many people of color um, so I think that he was uh, more subjected to the, um, uh, the necessity to assimilate, the necessity to fit in. I think, I, I don't know, I'm just assuming, but I think it, that the experience might have been more violent for him. So I think that to this day, it could explain um, some of his opinions and, and, and some of his positioning towards friends, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think that the racism that he has experienced is, is, is nothing like mine. So he's number one, I'm number six out of seven. Right. And I find it interesting that uh, number six, that is to say myself, and number <laughs> seven, my uh, youngest, my, the, 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 the last one of the family, she's, she's, she's been living in New York for 14 years now. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's gonna be 16 years actually this year. And I've spent 10 years more or less in New York. So we were the ones, the two last ones, perhaps more, um, I don't know, were we more spoiled? Were we more comfortable? Were we protected by the others or nurtured by the other ones? But we were the ones who were confident perhaps enough about friends to even migrate somewhere else and mm -hmm. to start a new life somewhere else. So I think I'm, I'm explaining and, gi and giving all those details to uh, reflect on the fact that in this current moment, everybody has yes. a, a different position. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm the only one who, uh, who studied, uh, you know, black studies, Africana studies, 
who got a PhD, uh, who studied in the United States and, and other places. So I, I also have an in intellectual approach to, to okay. those matters. Mm -hmm. Yes. But my sister in New York, in, uh, who, lives, who now lives in Brooklyn, she's really, <laughs> I don't know. She's down with everything she knows. We, we, we share that and, uh, and, and she knows. For the others, I think that when I was uh, growing up, when I was a graduate student, I remember some mm -hmm. of my um, older brothers and sisters who were kind of concerned with me, uh, who thought that I was uh, turning into a, a black nationalist, <laughs> that I was radical, that I was reading everything black, 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 black. And, and that, that's just not the way things work in France. Like you, you, you cannot be black openly. You cannot, you know, mm -hmm. um, and I'm saying black and not African. You can be African, you're African. But if you're in France, you have to, um, I don't know, navigate the country a particular way. And racial matters are taboo matters. You, you don't say I'm black, you, you know, that's. So they knew they were black. They, they knew they were African, but they, they didn't think that you could um, have a job, um, you know, get a job simply saying I'm black or you know, <laughs> expressing your black love <laughs> for the entire diaspora. And so they were worried. And I, I wrote my, um, my PhD dissertation on the nation of Islam in, uh, in the U.S. and Rastafari in Jamaica. Mm -hmm. And uh, when they were hearing about the myth of Yaqub by the Nation of Islam and the creation of the world and, uh, you know, the white man is the devil, they, they, yes, they were kind of scared. They were kind of scared back then. But it's interesting to see that now, I'm talking about like 15, 20 years ago, today they understand and they have told me that, that they understand what I was, um, you know, what I was talking about. Mm. They, they, it makes sense now. Right. Uh, it's one thing to study things. It's, 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 it can be more convenient to, um, you know, to hide be, behind African-Americans and mm. African-American history or Afro-Jamaican history. And then at some point you go back to your Afro-French history and that is um, not really, you know, directly dealt with and, and that is so connected with your, you know, private and intimate life by the way i feel um emotional when i talk about my family when i have my family in mind and my my you know my parents and um and my brothers and sisters it's um i i i i noticed i've noticed these days that every time i mention them it's you know memories it i think it has to do with age you know um I'm not, I'm not old, but I'm not young. And so when you, um, when you reflect on what we're doing today and where we are, each of us today, it's, and, and, and you think of back home and how you grew up, yeah, uh, yeah it gets me uh, emotional. I know. I, I mean, I'm the, the same way. I, anytime. And I talk about my family a lot and talk mm -hmm. about family experiences a lot. But yeah. it's, it's so personal. Yes, because on the one, yes, on the one hand, when you study everything, you know, you can get the, you know, the history, the, you know, the cultures, the statistics, everything. But it comes down to, you know, family histories, individuals, you know, like who left, how, what did you leave behind? Were you sad? Were you happy? Were you scared? What about your first apartment? What, what about your first, um, you know, I don't know, disappointments or successes? 
What does it mean for couples? What does it mean to, to have a kid, to have kids, to raise them, to be in a foreign place? Like I couldn't imagine myself in a, in a country, um, the language of which I don't speak in the world, for instance, and or not being literate, like fully literate. Yes, it makes you reflect on what, 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 what it has meant for your parents as individuals. Yes. And, and, and also how your, your own brothers and sisters navigate. Uh, you know, it's, it's really the balance between the, the theory and the practice. You, you know, you know the, these things. You can read a book, but then it's, it's also somebody's life, life. And it's also your life. And your yeah. life, like a second by second, minute by minute, day by day, your thoughts, your fear, your hopes, your, you, you know what I mean? It, it, it's it's mm-hmm. human. Um, so I think that the, to study, to work, to write about those allows you to, um, those issues allows you to find some distance and make things more convenient and kind of colder, you, you know what I mean? And more manageable. Mm-hmm. But sometimes you're brought back to, uh, you know, like real life, beyond the book, beyond the footnotes, beyond the... <laughs> the awe and the respect that you can have for colleagues and work, you know, like artists and intellectuals, like Mm -hmm. in concrete terms, in concrete terms, you know, like how do you translate and write about, I don't know, hopes and tears and love and, um, you know, successes, failures, losses. Sacrifice. Sacrifice, you know? Yeah. It it makes history a lot more manageable for me you know being able to think about my migration story of my dad you know mm-hmm. migration mm-hmm. story of my ancestors from north carolina to louisiana to arkansas it makes history comes alive in in my hands differently and in mm-hmm. my heart differently because like you said what were their experiences mm-hmm. and then for those who we have either direct experience with um and then hear stories about like i'm trying to track our family back to north carolina right now and mm-hmm. it's very it looks like it's happening and it's exciting, mm-hmm. but I mean, it's not that exciting necessarily for, um, for people who want to forget. Yes. Yes. And, right. and, and I, I totally understand what you're saying because what, 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 what I was just discussing to me is, is really quite recent in my life. For, for a long time, I was interested in the distance. I was interested in the not too close. So, okay. The U S you know, something, it's, it's, it's uh, interesting, it's, uh, you know, appealing, and, and, and it's really, like, in, I don't know, is it uh, 40 years? I don't know. But now, I'm like, what does it mean for you? And what does it mean for you and yours? And, and, and I'm, I'm getting more interested in, uh, in history and stories in that matter. And I think that they, 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 they count as much as the official, you know, big history what they want to forget, what they will never forget, but they want to forget, what they don't pass down, what they don't share, what don't, uh, you know, like, uh, so I keep talking to my mom and I'm, um, I'm so critical of her narrative and I'm like, um, <laughs> enough, enough with that official, that official, that, this official story. Like I want, I want the story. Give me the story. I'm not sure I'm going to get it, but at least I'm asking for it. Right. And for a long time, I believed the, um, I, I, at least I never questioned the official story. Mm-hmm. Now I'm like, come on, talk to me. 
you know, to be the parent of uh, a child who was born elsewhere and the daughter of a, a woman who was born elsewhere. And all the cultural gaps and all the silences and all the disappointments, you're going to grow up to be this or that, and you don't grow up to be this and that. And that's not in conformity with our culture. You're kind of a disappointment, but you're educated and that, that's good. And that, you, you know, so all those, you know, those frictions, those tensions, uh, perhaps what we have left is, 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 is the stories, the stories, you know, but that, yeah. that, that fills in a lot of silences and a lot of, um, you know, I always insist on the fact that I, I don't, I don't speak my mother tongue. And, and this, this, this is an obsession to me because I'm always thinking, maybe I'm, I'm wrong, but what don't we tell each other? Why don't we, why perhaps, what can't we tell each other? Because we don't speak the same language. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. My mother speaks French, you know, she speaks French, uh, but that's not her, uh, uh, her native tongue. She has an accent, but she can communicate in French, no problem. Okay. I speak French, but French is not my mother. So this is not my mother tongue. This is not my native tongue. So when we speak, what do we, how do we speak? What do we say? Well, we don't have the, the language of intimacy that mm -hmm. we can share as mother and daughter. So there are certain things that I know. Sometimes I see her search for words in our, in our language, in Jula. Mm -hmm. and, she, and, and every time I think, every time she feels it's convenient to her, she's like, I don't know how to express it. Uh, you know? I don't know how to express it. But it's the language that I will never have, even though she has spoken to me in Jula, that I know the language, but I've never been able to speak it. So mm -hmm. if we don't speak it, in what, what language are we talking? And what can we say? And what can't we say to each other? No, that's a profound thought because of the intricacies of language, the nuances. Mm -hmm. Yes. You know, and, and the not to be said, but still might want to say kind of things. Yes. You know? Yes. Um, we didn't speak uh, Jula at home. We, the children. But my mother and the adults, they would speak it. So we simply did not understand it. So I grew up with a lot of cousins and uncles and aunties and stuff like that. And it was kind of, um, of a shame for us not to um, speak it because we were, we were always told, oh, you don't speak the language. You don't speak the language. You know, like it was, um, we were blamed for that as if we had refused when it right. was, um, you know, we had not refused. I don't know. To this day, I cannot explain myself why I don't speak that language when I'm able to speak in English and I've learned English. So what psychologically perhaps was blocked? My language, I mean, my, I will still say my language, Jula, mm -hmm. is not the valued language. And that takes us back from the, 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 the intimate and private family circle to the geopolitics. If I was speaking English, I would, I would have never been told at, at school not to speak, um, I mean, to not speak Jula. You know what I mean? Yes. If I was speaking German, if I was speaking perhaps even Dutch, perhaps mm -hmm. Spanish in Europe, in, in, in um, you know, like in, in, uh, in France, uh, even Portuguese was, was not a valued language, you, you, mm -hmm. you know, because it was, it, were, it was poor immigrants. So right. we, 
we, we, we were told and my, my parents were encouraged not to encourage us to speak Jula because we, we, we had to master the French language. So right. we go from a, a very, you know, intimate issue to a very public issue. Very. Very. You know, at least a, a, a very public policy and also um, the question of hierarchy of, of, of cultures, of populations, of communities, communities and, and stuff like that. We, my parents were told not to teach us. It's not like they followed the, the order, but um, they didn't make it a point to have us, um, you know, like learn the language, even though I've, she has, my mother has always spoken to me when I was, a, um, when I was young. Um, like I could speak Jula like a, um, a five-year-old or a six-year-old. I know to say, you know, go to sleep, eat, wash your hands, go to the bathroom, shut up. I'm going to beat you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> stop talking. But that's all. I, I, um, these are the instructions that I received. But I cannot have a conversation. I don't know how you say love. I don't know how you say uh, loss. I don't know how you say death, disappearance, traveling. I don't know how you express your wishes. I don't know that. Wow. Wow. Because the implications for ancestry are so poignant and so heartfelt. Do you know what I mean? Like this idea of if you can't speak to your grandparents or you can't speak their language and the lessons were, are clear, they're even clear within the English language, meaning that we were taught, you're going to inherit this, so you don't need this other stuff. You are inheriting this world. You're going to need to navigate this world. We definitely want to um, thank you very much for coming in on the show today. Um, we really appreciate your um, candidness and your thoughtfulness. And yes, you, I, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Thank you.